0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde and I'm happy to welcome my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how are things today in Corona land?
1: Well, they're pretty good, and like uh probably I don't know two three hundred million or three hundred forty million Americans. I'm not on a ventilator. How about you?
0: No, no, no ventilator this week, so I guess that's a good thing,
1: yeah, and you know th- this raises a really important question, and the question is, how is it that the government has acquired the right to stop the lives and impose catastrophic damage on millions of people uh, because someone might get sick? How exactly did that happen?
0: Yeah, it's been very interesting to watch how some of the original dire predictions, too, have been walked back and had to be walked back because uh, the numbers just would not align with reality. And I think there's a good lesson in there, and that is, you know, even authorities and experts can sometimes get it wrong.
1: Sometimes they always get it wrong, and particularly when they have something to gain. Remember, these are the same people who told us 20 years ago about the weapons of mass destruction, the mushroom clouds. They lie perpetually, and if they don't lie, they're simply incompetent. Why is anybody paying any attention to these people? These people told us that, what, two two or three million people were going to be dead by now. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. And, And then it got ratcheted down to a quarter million people. Now they're talking about maybe 60,000, which was, by the way, about the number of people that uh, the CDC says died of the the last serious flu outbreak, which was in 2018.
0: Well, and I'm sure you've probably seen the news out of California where Stanford conducted a study of, I don't know how many people, a couple thousand people. And they are concluding, the researchers, they're concluding that the infection rate there may be 50 to 85 times higher than was thought, meaning The virus has been here a lot longer, a lot more people have had it, and it hasn't killed us off like flies.
1: Of course not, and it's not containable. Viruses, by definition, are always out there. That's why we have a flu season every year. And it's not to minimize the fact that some people are threatened by this. Some people will get sick. A few people will develop complications. They'll get pneumonia. They may die. But it it is not the business of a free government in a free country to turn the country into a prison because uh, they're going to keep us safe or keep us healthy. The the obligation of the government in a free society is to protect our rights, uh, including our right of free association and our right to assume risks for ourselves.
0: Well, and you and I talked before we, we came on the air. And uh, one thing that you're starting to see now is there's some pushback starting to develop across mm-hmm. the country. Give me your thoughts on, on that
1: well i don't think it's coincidental that uh... the eruption of outrage is happening uh, about thirty days into the national lockdown and i don't think it's coincidental because thirty days is roughly the monthly billing cycle for most people it's when you get your next mortgage or rental bill it's when your credit card bill comes due it's when the power company sends you a notice and people have now been out of work for a month or more and haven't earned any money and they're being presented with these bills And it's really starting to bear in on them that they are being bankrupted over this and it's got to stop.
0: Agreed. Now, I actually had the chance to go to one of these uh, protests on. Actually, I call it a rally because people were much more standing for something than simply protesting against something. But I went to the one in Salt Lake City. More than a thousand people showed up at the Salt Lake City County building. And, you know, some people were in masks and some people in gloves. A lot of us weren't. But the bottom line was, it was a very, very diverse crowd. I'm not kidding. I'm talking three percenters with Gadsden flags standing next to drag queens. And they were all saying, enough. We want the boot off our neck. We want to be able to go back to work and assume authority over our lives rather than outsource it to someone in authority.
1: That's right. Uh, No matter how you look at this, if you want to play the numbers game, uh, you're talking about devastation that is being imposed upon tens of millions of people that is absolutely unprecedented in the history of this country, and it's simply outrageous. And I ask people, well, what's the number? Give me a number that justifies this. Uh, If it's 60,000, okay, let's let's peg it at 60,000. If it's 30,000, how about 10,000? At what point do our rights get suspended because some people might get hurt or might get sick?
0: Yeah. And and what really it comes down to is, um, I think most of us are pretty good at determining what is right for ourselves. But somewhere along the line, people have taken that and run with it. And I get to determine what's right for you, too, Eric.
1: That exactly is, is the crux of this matter. Uh, you know, Just like I have no problem with communism as such, meaning if a group of people want to go out, buy a piece of land, and live on that land in a communistic fashion, more power to them. They have every right to do that. What they don't have the right to do is to stick a gun in my ribs and tell me that I have to contribute my fair share to their communist enterprise. And with regard to this business, certainly people who are worried about getting sick, just as in the past, have every right to social distance. They have every right to stay home. They have every right to practice whatever measures they deem appropriate to protect themselves. What they don't have the right to do is to stick a gun in our ribs and force us to adopt the measures that they think are necessary to protect them.
0: Amen. Now, sadly, it it appears that much of the mainstream media has has taken a side in this issue and they are squarely on the side against people exercising their civil liberties.
1: Well, the mainstream media has, has reached a new level of, and I'm going to make, a, make up a word here, despicability. <laughs> uh, there's a saying in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, they, they want to hystericize things because it gets eyes, it gets clicks. Uh, but in this case, what they are now doing is the same thing as a person going into a crowded theater and screaming fire. That's a criminal act because what you're doing is inciting a panic, and you can get people killed by inciting a panic. And these people in the press are doing precisely the same thing. There's the egregious example of uh, a CBS, for ex- which, which ran a story about uh, all the bodies stacking up, and they ran uh, images of what purportedly was a hospital scene in New York City. It turns out uh, it was a scene from Italy. That's deliberately dishonest. And those people should be prosecuted, in my opinion, for what they're doing, for exaggerating and hyping this fear.
0: Well, if there's a positive spot, though, and this, this is one of the things that I saw that actually gave me a little hope. A friend of mine who's a newspaper reporter in southern Utah said, you know, prior to these protests, I thought that this was just a bunch of the uh, America, rights kind of people out there, you know, yeah. wa- wanting to wave the flag. But he said after he actually showed up and was covering one of these protests, he said... I saw average people who were becoming desperate about, how do I pay my rent? How do I pay my bills? Sure. And so it's starting a conversation that I think is actually changing some minds. Now, I know you're doing your part, too, uh, with with the cattle tags that you're wearing out in public.
1: Yeah, it it serves two purposes. I, I made myself an ear tag, just like farmers put on cows. Uh, for the purposes of making the point that we are now being treated literally like cattle. Uh, uh, Some of these people who are pushing corona fever, like Bill Gates and Fauci, uh, are talking about forced vaccinations. I mean, forced in the sense that if you don't submit to being vaccinated and tracked like a cow, you won't be permitted out in public. You won't be permitted to buy things in grocery stores to transact. You'll be essentially corralled in your pen. Uh, and I'm trying to get people to think about that and also to point out the, the absurdity of it, to make people laugh at this stuff, because we have to start laughing at it. We have to mock it, because if you can mock tyranny, uh, tyranny loses a lot of its authority, and I think it's critically important at this point to do that.
0: Agreed. agreed well and it, it takes courage though to do this i mean i don't want people to think that uh, you know that you're, you're going to be somehow shielded from criticism uh, the folks who showed up at this uh, this rally in salt lake uh, the criticism was pretty muted until the the crowd started to march up to the state capitol just yep. up the road and then there were people standing on their doorsteps heaping abuse people driving by in cars you're killing people you're you're uh-huh. infecting people so you got to have thick skin if you're going to make a stand
1: well, you know what? We hear constantly about how America is the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? Sure. It, it's time to stand up for freedom. And, and if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to risk uh, being uh, catcalled by somebody or even fined or even arrested, then you're not worthy of being a free man. And you deserve the chains that are going to descend upon your shoulders.
0: Well, okay, I I agree with you 100 percent. The one thing I see standing in people's way, though, is they're hesitant to stand up for their rights because a lot of people aren't necessarily clear on what they're standing for. Any suggestions on how a person can get that clarity, know what they're standing for and then stand with confidence?
1: Well, there's a variety of ways to do that. One is to just stop and think about how this situation is in many ways a replay of what happened after 9-11, when we were we were peddled fear porn about Islamic terrorists. And of course, there is such a thing as Islamic terrorism, but the whole thing was exaggerated to such an extreme degree. And we had safety theater, security theater. We had, remember, the, the orange, red, yellow days, and oh, yeah. all the stuff that went on after that. And people were terrified into submission, and and we had the pay- Patriot act rammed down our throats and it's still in existence and we have to remember that the same people who peddled that to us are peddling it to us now the second thing to do is just to look around and check out the facts and, and consider the fact that these dire apocalyptic predictions that we were given simply didn't pan out again just and these predictions are coming from the same people who kept telling us about the climate crisis and how the earth was going to be washed away by the by the melting polar caps it's it's a constant refrain of inculcating fear in people in order to acquire power over people
0: oh I agree completely and, and hopefully conversations like the one that we're having will, will serve as a starting point to help inoculate people against that kind of fear-mongering
1: people should start using their eyes instead of listening to what they're being told by the mainstream media and ask ask around do you know anybody who is who is otherwise healthy who wasn't 90 years old in a nursing home who's been killed by corona How much is your freedom worth to you versus the the, the potential slight risk of getting sick from Corona?
0: We've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. We'll be back after this. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I am talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, uh, going to the store these days, it's, yep. it's becoming a, quite an exercise in, uh, uh, what do we call it, socialist disans- distancing. Uh, talk to me about your impressions. As, as people go out there and shop, I'm seeing a lot of obedience signaling, you know, masks and gloves and so forth. But there are some, some strange things appearing on the floor of the store that I'm trying to make sense of
1: well yeah there's something very sinister going on uh, many people who have gone to a store recently have probably seen that the tape that is now put on the floors that you're supposed to walk along a certain path and then there's another piece of tape and you're supposed to stand there and uh... anybody who's ever been booked by cops or been in a prison will recognize what's going on uh... you go into a booking station where they process people who've been arrested for something serious, or if you go into a prison, and I've been in these things because I've been a news reporter, uh, that's what you'll see. And they're conditioning and habituating the populace to being treated like prisoners. And it's an extraordinarily ominous and dangerous thing, and it needs to be stopped immediately.
0: It makes me think, too, of the uh, porno scanners at the airport, where you have yeah, you know sure. the, the lines that you have to stand here. Okay, now assume the surrender position, and you know let yeah. us take a, an electronic peek under your clothes.
1: Yeah, that was submission training. That was to eradicate what had been a line in the sand about your personal space, meaning that if you hadn't done something, I mean, nobody could touch you as a private citizen, literally put their hands on you. You were free to move about, and government drones couldn't order you to raise your hands. So, for twenty years now, people have been uh, have been conditioned to accept submission training, and now they're literally going to be treated like prisoners being processed into a booking facility and then a prison. That is what is being created around us on the basis of this sickness psychosis and we have got to dispel it quickly.
0: you know you had a very interesting uh, piece published on your website recently, an open letter to small businesses and and this is where I really saw a lot of people turn out like at this protest or this rally in Salt Lake last Saturday um, a lot of the folks who showed up were, were small business owners who are desperate mm-hmm. to keep their doors open or to resume business, but someone in authority has to deign to give them permission. Tell me about uh, this letter that you wrote to small business, and what is your message to small business owners? Well,
1: the, the, the gist of it is, what have they got to lose at this point? Now, they've been shuttered in my state for more than a month, and many businesses simply cannot withstand this. It is going to be the end of their business. Uh, many of them were motivated trying to do the right thing based on all of the initial apocalyptic scenarios of millions of people dead and so on. Uh, but now we know that that was simply grossly exaggerated and not, not accurate, and yet the businesses are still required by law to shutter their doors and not able to do business. So I suggested to a business owner that I know, why not just say the heck with it and open your doors and and let the heavens fall. Let people come in. There's nobody, Nobody's being forced to, to do business with you. If, if you want to ha- go to the it's a gym in this case and go work out, let's go work out and let's let the government send the body armored hut 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 crews to arrest and frog march and tackle people who are just trying to go and work out. Let's do it. What have they got to lose? Their businesses are going to be cratered and grenaded anyway.
0: No, agreed. And and at this and you know some places like in in, in uh, was it Los Angeles, you know they're they're talking about well we'll shut off the power. We'll shut off the water. You know the government's flexing its authority. Um yep. At that point you really don't have much to lose.
1: Now you- well, there's a, an excellent quote by the Soviet dissident, uh, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening are familiar with. And in one of his books, there's a, a classic quote of his in which he, he talked about uh, how they burned in the camps, thinking uh, how things would have been different. If when the agents of the government had come to drag people away in the middle of the night, they had grabbed whatever was at hand, fire pokers, uh, baseball bats, anything, and made it such that there was fear going in the other direction so that the government enforcers feared the way they're imposing fear on us, Uh, that's the only way to stop this. If we submit and meekly bow our heads like the cattle that they are treating us and conditioning us to be, then we're going to end up just like cattle, which which means we're going to end up uh, going down the chute and being turned into hamburger.
0: You make a very powerful distinction, too, in your open letter to small businesses about the difference between living and existence. Would you expound on that?
1: Well, certainly. If you're a prisoner uh, in a solitary cell, you're you're alive. Uh, Food comes through the slot in the door, and you are alive. You exist. That's not living, though, is it? And right now, Americans are no longer living. It's literally at the point where our lives have been taken away from us, not just our economic lives, but our social lives. We can't even go for a walk in a park anymore with our family and throw a ball to our kid. We can't have a barbecue at our house without worrying about a crew of armed government workers descending and hut-hut-hutting us. What kind of a life is that?
0: No, it's it's and this is something I've tried to explain to others as well when they say, well, you know, we all have to do our part to make sure we survive this. And I'm telling them living in a big open air prison to me sounds like a pretty sucky consolation prize for surviving coronavirus.
1: Right. Exactly. Survival is not everything. You know, life itself, biological existence is not the be all and end all of existence. Uh, the reason that we're put here on this earth is to, to grow, to be human, to have friendships and families, to develop associations, uh, to develop our creative abilities, to do all of those things that make living worth living. Existing is not living. And and more fundamentally, nobody has the right to take that away from you. And that's what we're talking about here. These people who are terrified, let them stay home, let them shutter their business, and let the rest of us go on with our lives and our business.
0: Eric, what is the danger in allowing solutions like this to become normalized and routine?
1: Well, doesn't it logically follow that if the government can lock down the country based on uh, the risk of people getting coronavirus, then why can't it lock down the country because of ordinary flu? And for that matter, why can't it lock down the country when there's a blizzard coming? Oh, my gosh, it's unsafe. Somebody might lose control of their car. Somebody might freeze to death. We have to lock down the county until the snow clears. There's no end to this.
0: No, agreed. And 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 precedent is everything in the sense that government can point to it and say, well, you didn't object when we did this. Why are you objecting now? Correct.
1: Correct. The principle has to be dialed back here. And again, uh, per the beginning of our conversation, the principle is simply this. If we wish to live in a free country then the business of the of of the government of a free country is to protect people's rights period it is not to keep people safe and it is certainly Mm -hmm. not to keep people healthy that is your business and my business as free individuals to figure out for ourselves
0: well and and it it shouldn't we shouldn't even have to vocalize this it should be understood freedom will always entail risk
1: yeah absolutely And tyranny (laughs) will always entail risk too you know, the 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 certain risk of being tyrannized. I'd rather have the potential risk of getting a bug, and even if that bug potentially kills me, I'll take that risk any day over the certainty of living under the thumb of a police state.
0: As you point out in your article, we have, as free people the right to assume risk. Now, I don't know why there's this assumption that but we're all a bunch of little mindless children who can't assess those risks for ourselves. I think uh, well, I think course. people have done a pretty good job of sussing out the information and and so- separating fact from fiction.
1: Well, of course, again, this is such simple logic. It's it astounds me that people don't apply this. If if this were the black death, do you think that most people would on their own simply stay home? Of course they would. You know, If if you knew that every other person or even every tenth person out there uh, was dying from something horrible, people would take steps on their own. The very fact that this has to be imposed at gunpoint ought to tell you something, just like all of these other things that come from government. If a good idea is a good idea, people will say, hey, that's a good idea. Give me some of that. If it's a bad idea, they have to be forced to take it.
0: And, and by that same token, if it's a good idea, you don't have to have experts parading on the media endlessly, you know, shilling for it and, and insisting you must do this and suspend any disbelief or suspend any tendency to question us, because after all, we're the experts.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, and speaking of experts, you know, it's funny to to point out, uh, it was only about, what, 40 or 50 years ago that these same doctors were telling us to smoke Cools, because that was the healthy cigarette. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're, we're down to the last 30 seconds here. Eric, let's uh, let's shamelessly pimp your website to tell us about epautos.com.
1: Sure. Uh, well, it's, it's a libertarian-themed gears, uh, 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 website where uh, in normal times we mostly talk about cars, but we also talk about transportation, uh, freedom of movement, and and various things related to that. And if people are interested in, in reading about and talking about uh, cars or libertarian political issues or anything along those lines, that's a good place to go. And if they have any kind of questions uh, to ask about cars or libertarian politics, we also entertain those there.
0: Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. So I came across a great article, actually a great commentary, an opinion piece from Anthony Davies and James Harrigan. We had them on the show just a couple of weeks ago. And I love the question that they are asking. Actually, it's more of a statement that they're making, and that is coronavirus shutdowns may be short-sighted. Now, I know some people are like, really? You think? No, but listen to listen to how they back this up. And it's a, it's a... It's an idea that I wish more people would at least try to wrap their minds around. What if this air on the side of safety was too much? What if what if we went too far? Is there something we could learn from this? So I'm not telling you, you have to believe whatever these guys are saying, but I think it's worth considering what they have to say. And they say in times of crisis, politicians want to look like they're doing something and they don't want to hear about limits on their authority. In times of crisis, people want someone to do something, and they don't want to hear about trade-offs. So far, so good, right? Well, this is the breeding ground for grand policies driven by the mantra, if it saves just one life, and of course, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo invoked this idea to defend closure policies. Well, that mantra has echoed across the country from county councils to mayors to school boards to police to clergy as justification for closures, curfews, and enforced social distancing. Now the authors here say rational people understand this isn't how the world works, regardless of whether we acknowledge them. Trade-offs exist, and acknowledging trade-offs is an important part of constructing sound policy. Unfortunately, they point out even mentioning trade-offs in a time of crisis brings the accusation that only heartless beasts would balance human lives against dollars. But each one of us balance human we balance human lives against dollars and any number of other things every single day. 5,000 Americans die each year from choking on solid food. Now, we could save every one of those lives just by mandating that all meals be pureed. Sure, pureed food isn't appetizing, but if it saves just one life, it must be worth doing. Your chance of dying while driving a car is almost double your chance of dying while driving an SUV. We could save lives by mandating that everyone drive bigger cars. Yeah, SUVs are more expensive and they're worse for the environment, But if it saves just one life, it must be worth doing. Heart disease kills almost 650,000 Americans each year. We could reduce the incidence of heart disease by 14% by mandating that everyone exercise daily. Now, many won't want to exercise daily, but if it saves just one life, it must be worth doing. Now, James Harrigan and Anthony Davies say, look, legislating any of these things would be ridiculous. Most sane people acknowledge as much. How do we know Because each of us makes choices like these every day that increase our chances of dying or the chances of our dying. And we do so because there are limits on what we're willing to give up to improve our chances of staying alive. In other words, our daily actions prove that none of us believes if it saves just one life is a fail is a fail proof basis for making decisions. Yet when a threat like coronavirus emerges, we go looking for an imaginary cure that will save lives without trade offs. Now, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis estimated that our current politician-induced shutdown will yield 30% unemployment and a 50% reduction in GDP in the second quarter of this year. That's a $2.6 trillion price tag, and that's just in the second quarter. Before the social distancing, the CDC's worst-case projection for the U.S. was 1.7 million deaths. Even under this worst-case scenario, and even if the cost were only a 50% reduction in GDP for only one quarter, the shutdown will have cost us $1.5 million per life saved. If the actual deaths are fewer and the cost of the shutdown greater, the cost per life saved could be much, much more. Now, the tired counter-argument is that we should tell this to the families who've lost loved ones to the virus, but they point out that cuts both ways. Because we can also tell it to the families who will lose loved ones to poverty, depression, suicide, and domestic violence that will accompany a 30% unemployment rate. In the U.S. each year, there are an estimated 10 million cases of domestic abuse and over 47,000 suicides. The shutdown will increase these numbers, adding to the $1.5 million cost per life saved. Calls to mental health hotlines in the U.S. have increased almost 900%. Since the shutdown, the, com- the uncomfortable truth, they say, is that no policy right now can save lives. It can only trade lives. Now, good policies result in a net positive trade off. But we have no idea whether any trade off is a net positive until we take a sober look at the cost of saving lives. And they say we can't do that until we stop with the if it just saves one life nonsense. Look, their point here is we don't know the virus's mortality rate because we haven't conducted randomized testing. We don't we don't know the cost of the economic shutdown because we've never shut down our economy like this before. What we do know is that policies designed to stop the spread of the virus at all costs are designed out of fear, not focused concern for saving lives. Wow. Let that one sink in for a moment. The policies designed to stop the spread of the virus at all costs are designed out of fear, not focused concern for saving lives. And they say it's time we take a sober look at what this shutdown is costing us. Again, this is from Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan. Fantastic stuff. You'll find a link to this. And I would highly encourage check out their weekly podcast, Words and Numbers, which is well worth your time as well. So this brings us to another crisis. Well, I don't know if I want to use the word crisis. Gee, are, are, am I crisis mongering if I call it that? There's a sickness in our society, and it's not the coronavirus, but it's it's a very legitimate sickness nonetheless. Skylar Collins, who is the editor of EverythingVoluntary.com, has a great little... And this is just a quick little missive on it, but he nails it. He absolutely nails it. He says, our society has a sickness. No, not COVID-19 but a lack of real authority. Now he says, I'm not talking about the chattering heads in state and national capitals, the authoritarians. He says, those people want a popularity contest by making impossible promises and emotional pleas with a complete disregard for economics and ethics. He says, I'm talking about the kind of authority that comes from experience and wisdom. And this is a really powerful distinction. He says, leaders, the kind that have earned their station, By consistently demonstrating to others the ability to do what's right and needed in the face of serious challenges to both the protection of life and the preservation of liberty, not rulers. Those leaders are totally absent in our society at this crucial time. And he says, I think that people are only spreading misinformation on the one hand and propaganda on the other because they recognize that the people who call themselves the authorities are totally false. They haven't earned it in the only way it can be earned. And so our society's prognosis is possibly quite grave. Statism has that effect. So what can you do? What can I do? Yesterday we played the clip of the expert on NPR talking about how, you know, you become an insufferable know-it-all if you presume that you know better than the experts. And I think that might be a little psychological projection on his part, but hey, I'm no expert, but I'm bum, right? It's, it's the idea that, well, you know, experts are the ones that we have to turn to and the ones we have to acknowledge have the answers to, to all the questions that lie before us. But I'm not sure that I agree with that assessment in the sense that if those experts are being attached to bad ideas or if they're being attached to bad policies or highly agendized policies— then it seems to me that uh, maybe someone is just trying to use those experts in a, you know, a, an appeal to authority to get us to suspend disbelief and to to accept those policies or bad laws or bad rules without any question. And I'm not saying that you have to proclaim yourself to be the smartest person in the room to recognize that you should have a healthy sense of skepticism and you should be willing to question what any person purporting to be an expert is saying now that doesn't mean that uh, automatically you're going to reject whatever they say just because, well, he says he's an expert. That means that if you solicit someone for expert advice, listen to what they have to say, weigh it, maybe get a second opinion. But don't just take it on face value because, well, that's an expert and I'm supposed to believe what the experts say. You you know what I'm suggesting here. And I know it may seem heretical to some, but, you know, we've seen the health experts have to walk back some of their dire predictions of how many thousands or perhaps millions of people would already be dead from coronavirus. Experts are human beings, too. They're made of the same clay that you and I are made of. They are fallible. They can make mistakes. And the really dangerous part is when they allow themselves to be tied to someone else's agenda as a means of imposing some kind of top-down, you know, authoritarian scheme Under the guise of, but the experts say this is what you have to do. You and I have to be confident enough in our ability to run our own lives and make our own decisions to be willing to question what the experts say. Sometimes they may be giving us very perfectly sound advice. And it's up to us to do our homework to vet that advice and see if it holds up. Usually this can be done by corroborating it against other experts and seeing is there a commonality? Is there something that they're both, you know, saying here or maybe, you know, you go to more experts. But the bottom line is the decision is yours. The authority over how to run your life is yours first and foremost. Do not outsource that to experts. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Thanks again for joining us. By the way, coming up in the next hour, I will have the fire starter himself, Thomas Dykes, joining me. He's got a powerful message that uh, is timeless. Whether there's a pandemic or not, he has got some great advice to share. Uh, Not only some of the thoughts, I actually ran into him at the the, uh, rally in Salt Lake City over the weekend, but he's got some great thoughts on how to elect the right candidate every time as well as some, some great thoughts about just how to conduct yourself as a lover of freedom during times of great panic or pandemic. All right, so a couple other things I wanted to share with you today. Uh, Judge Napolitano did another guest appearance on Tucker uh, Tucker Carlson's show, and... <laughs> First of all, Tucker Carlson takes a lot of these celebrities to task and the media to task for for making this this uh, whole uh, pandemic all about them. Listen to what he has to say here. Many of the media seem to be enjoying this crisis and they are.
2: It's been a great opportunity to talk at great length about their all time favorite subject, which is themselves and how much more impressive they are than you. Here's that weird little guy on CNN. It wasn't until um, this Friday night that I hit a wall. And that's when the tears came. We have nothing to compare this with. So it can be incredibly alarming. It can be incredibly depressing. Media can help. Making media can help. The emotions are real for everybody. They're a big part of the story. Oh, barf. This is a guy who got a special exemption to the government quarantines he so fervently supports for other people. All of us in the media got that exemption, by the way. This is a guy who's working in a high-paying job when tens of millions of Americans are not working at all. Please be quiet. Your tears are not, quote, a big part of the story, and neither are you. For God's sakes, please stop talking about yourself. It is unsufferable. But they can't stop. The most consistent byproduct of privilege always and everywhere is narcissism. So it's not surprising that our pampered overlords just cannot shut up about themselves. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doesn't make sense as a person until you learn that she grew up as Sandy Ocasio in an affluent suburb of Westchester and then went on to get some silly, pointless degree at a silly, pointless private college. Of course she did. It's so obvious once you know it. Thank you, Wikipedia. She is a child of privilege. She's not some kid from the streets. Someone who actually grew up in the Bronx would be far too embarrassed to drone on about herself on Instagram. Please. Suddenly, people like Sandy Ocasio seem to have a lot more power than they did before this pandemic arrived from China. That's at least as scary as the virus itself, and its effects will last much, much longer. You have a right to lawfully push back against that, and you should. We're joined now by Fox's senior judicial analyst, Judge Andrew Napolitano. Judge, thanks so much for coming on. So when politicians start arresting people who disagree with them and the media applaud, what sort of moment is that?
3: It's a very uh, depressing and fearful moment, uh, Tucker. Uh, The media could not exist in this country without the First Amendment, and they are applauding it's being used, it's being crushed, because they disagree with the message of those who are being crushed. I mean, stated differently, the Constitution applies in good times and in bad. There is no pandemic exception to the Constitution. There's no emergency provision or trigger in the Constitution. The rights articulated in the Constitution are guaranteed. So the rights of everyone listening to us now to tell the government to go to hell, it's an absolute, personal, fundamental liberty that the government cannot punish you for exercising. And your right peaceably to gather with others to deliver the same type of message is similarly guaranteed. But those who run the government, every one of whom has taken the same oath that I once took when I became a judge, that everybody who works for the government, from the president to a school board janitor, from a governor to every cop on the street, And that oath is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, which includes all the amendments, the first 10 of which are the Bill of Rights. You, my dear friend, burst this bubble last week when you asked the governor of my home state, Governor Phil Murphy, did you consider that you might be nullifying the Bill of Rights? And he responded, I'm paraphrasing, the Bill of Rights, that's above my pay grade. Now, he either thought that was funny or he was being serious. It absolutely wasn't funny. It was deplorable. And if he meant it, he has no business being the governor of a state because he's violating the oath that he took when he became governor.
2: I couldn't agree with you more. And I know people are afraid, and I understand that people want to do their best to help, and I think that's a noble instinct. But this it's getting scary. And I appreciate your judge pointing that out very much. Good to see you tonight. All the best.
0: All right. I think (laughs) that's— Isn't that refreshing? Isn't it refreshing to actually hear somebody in media talking about uh, how our our essential rights matter, our civil liberties matter, and and I know that it, it may be hard for some people to, to conceive of the uh, what do you mean the media hates our civil liberties? If you could see the way though that many of these uh, uh, these protests that cropped up around the nation, where people descended on state capitals or on on you know city office buildings and said, look, enough. We will make the decisions from here on out as to what is essential and what isn't in our lives. And, of course, it's always, well, you know, these are just a bunch of angry Trumpsters out there, you know, turning this into a campaign rally or pushing back against stay-at-home orders, these anti-government types, and did everything in their power to marginalize. And, and it was funny, I listened to Erika Moutsos uh, doing an interview on, on KSL yesterday, and, and the host, who, look, she's admittedly uh, one of the most committed statists that that I can think of. Had to get in as soon as Eric was off the line. Well, of course, now uh, guidelines say that you should do this and this and this. You know, assuring Master that we love you and and uh, you know we're we're still going to you know make sure that your message is is given out. Uber alles. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And and the only thing worse than this is the people who for for whatever reason feel like you know it's it's their job to become little social enforcers. And and guilt the rest of us. I know you've heard this phrase. I know you've heard people say, well, no one has a right to infect others. You've heard it. I've heard it. Um, I don't know if you've responded to it. I have tried to. I've never seen a better response than the one Kent McManigle put forth in a column recently on everything-voluntary.com. If you haven't subscribed, you really should be getting this daily in your inbox. It's It's marvelous content. And he says, there's a phrase I've seen making the rounds recently. No one has the right to infect others, which he says sounds good on the surface. But what does that even mean? You know, beyond justifying Corona apocalypse tyranny, that is. Now, listen to his explanation. He says, for you not to have the right to do something means you are violating the rights of someone else if you do it. Now, the above assertion doesn't distinguish between knowing you are doing it or not. In other words, it leaves no room for biological reality and stuff happens. Nope. If you transmit a pathogen of any sort, you have violated someone's rights. Nonsense, he says. This is almost like saying you have no right to breathe out carbon dioxide, like certain segments of the population would claim. Now, he says, if you know you're contagious... You need to try your best not to infect other people. Don't grab someone by the ears and cough in their face. Don't sneeze on them or throw snotty rags at them. Don't spit in their food. Stay away from others as much as you reasonably can. Take precautions and be mindful of what you're doing at all times, something everybody should be doing regardless. Maybe even warn people to stay back if you believe that will help. But to claim you're violating someone's rights simply by going about your business in a generally responsible way Come on. Ken McManagle says, no one has a right to use force against you if they are just worried that you might be infectious or because you aren't obeying the ignorant orders of known liars and power-hungry monsters. And he says, it seems that's what most of those uh, who say you have no right to infect others are actually advocating. Not responsibility from you, but irresponsibility from others. And in making this claim, They're supporting mandatory lockdowns, mandatory vaccinations, business closures, and antisocial nannying. They would use the force of the state against those who aren't following the edicts of the state, regardless of whether they're obviously sick or not, for a disease which seems to be much less deadly than government would like us to fear. Plus, he says, if someone doesn't want to get infected, they're free to sequester themselves in isolation from all humans. That's how to avoid being infected without violating the rights of anyone else. He says, I'll even do what I can to help deliver supplies to anyone in my sphere who takes this approach, as he's already doing, if they want. How they deal with what I deliver, such as disinfecting what I bring, it's up to them at that point. And I love this last line here. Ken McManigle says, please don't act like the statists by cowering in fear that someone somewhere might have a virus you don't want and that they're violating you by not preemptively dying in a deep hole for your convenience and safetiness. Wow. I'd say that uh, that pretty much hits the mark. <laughs> I'll I'll have links to this on the show notes, which you can find at LovingLiberty.net. We have the complete podcast archives for all of our wonderful hosts. If you haven't taken the time to get acquainted with them all, you really should. There's some very uh, interesting, diverse, and enlightening messages to be found. And, of course, it's all there at your convenience to listen to at your leisure. We'll be back next hour. Thomas Dykes, the Firestarter, joins me. This is Loving Liberty. Please stay with us.